everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Duke Show. I am Dr. Duke, and I am joined today by a neat guest, and I hope we're going to have him on regularly. His name is Daniel Natal. Uh, he's an, a, a very serious intellectual, from my, from my two cents, and uh, he also is the host of the Daniel Natal Show for the New American Magazine, and I very much urge you to find him there. We'll, we'll let him plug that at the end of the show, and hopefully you will start watching him there as well. Daniel, thank you. To, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, Duke. I'm a great fan, as you know. So and I and I you and I, I we we've talked about this briefly before, and I wanted to spend a whole period, 24 minutes, talking to you about this. Um, I want to talk about the Roman Republic, and most Americans have no idea that the first republic was actually Rome. But then, how would they when they don't even know that America is a republic? They think we're a democracy. So uh, let's talk. Let's start there. Let's talk a little bit briefly about what this republic was, when it got started, what they conceived, uh, just so people get a sense who don't understand R uh, Roman history. I'll let you start anywhere you want to. Okay, um, I, I'm gonna be annoying and I'm gonna start with Aristotle's politics. And Aristotle's, Aristotle said that uh, governments that we would think of as republics uh, usually start with farmers with agrarian populations. And he said in politics that um, when you have farmers who have to spend so much of their time in the fields, they're gonna typically have a pared down form of government um, that is, you know, it's not overbearing, it's not overarching. And so when you look at the the early Romans, they kind of conform to that, uh, just like in the United States. In, in uh, 1776, I think 91% of the population was in some form of agriculture uh, or, or related industry. All the founding fathers, you know, the overwhelming majority were gentlemen farmers. Uh, so we were an agrarian population and so was Rome. Uh, Thomas Madden points that out, that uh, Rome, even though it's uh, Italy's a, a peninsula, they basically, for large sections of their history, they ignored uh, the sea. They, they really didn't have a navy for, for quite a long period, and they were just basically an agrarian population. And so naturally, you know, in, in conformity to what Aristotle said, they did develop, uh, you know, these these uh, rudimentary forms of government uh, that, that kind of took root after they, they uh, the king was Tarquin. And uh, they got sick of, you know, tyrants. And so after Tarquin, they basically wanted a form of government that was divided purposely so that no one man could take over. And uh, so, yeah, so a lot of the sociological uh, underpinnings that led to the Roman Republic also led to the American Republic. So that's that's an interesting thing. And one of one of the things, too, I'll, I'll shut up in a second, and let you tell it. But one of the things, too, that's interesting is because of this prerequisite of an agrarian population, it's really, really hard to kind of transfer our form of government, say, to Nazi Germany, which was a highly industrialized society, um, you know, or or to any other part or to Iraq, you know, these these civil, civilizational you know levels that different people are at. It's really hard to graft one person's you know constitution onto another people. And and Hegel says that he says in uh, Phenomenology of Mind, he says that the uh, the constitution of a country is is the embodiment of the ethos of a people. And he said it is very uh, shallow to think that you can graft the, the constitution of one people onto another people. And that's why we've seen kind of countless failures of Americans, you know, thinking that they can nation build and kind of, you know, and we're even losing it ourselves after the industrial revolution. And we ceased being an agrarian population and it goes down from, you know, 93%, whatever it was to, to like, you know, 1%, I think today, um, you know, people are farmers in the country. Um, 
we start getting these ideas of mechanized government bureaucracy because you need those for a factory system. You need micromanagement. You need like this managerial class. And that's where our deep state basically emerged as we transitioned away from the agrarian population. It's very, very hard to keep a republic, you know, when the technological underpinnings kind of shift and change. So. Yeah, I, let's let's take a one step back a little bit for our audience. So Aristotle, who you start with, of course, theorized republics. We really didn't have a serious republic before Rome, and of course, the Roman yeah, no, Republican, right. the Ro Roman Republic, actually existed before the birth of Aristotle. So what happened mm. about roughly 750 A.D. when Rome became a city? As you mentioned, it had a number yeah. of kings, a, a handful of kings, and with each successive king, the Romans became more and more dis. dis concerted by them. They started appropriating more wealth. They started uh, at one point, which was the breaking point, uh, a, Russia, a, a Roman king actually r raped a virgin girl, which outraged the people of Rome. And they had a rebellion. Interesting, it was a Brutus, another Brutus, who helped push back against the Roman monarchy. And within about 100 years or so, you had the very first republic anywhere in the world, again, a couple hundred years before the birth of Aristotle. And it was st st strikingly uh, reminiscent in some ways to what we have, the Senate. Our concept of the Senate in the American Republic was taken directly from the Romans. Uh, and they didn't have a Congress, so to speak, but they did have a house for the plebs, for the average people. They had elected offices like tribunes who served the lower house, if you can use that anachronistic term. You had a kind of bifurcated government, uh, very much in theory, at least, like what we were going to have. So sociologically speaking, before you even had a political theorist like Aristotle talking about these forms of government, we actually had one in the West. And of course, the founding fathers, when they considered uh, what kind of a country they wanted us to be, the, they, they had two major influences. One was the ethos, the moral imperative of the Gospels in the Old Testament. That sort of shapes the ethical and moral framework of our country. But when it comes to civil governance and rational government, they went right back to the Romans, which was an inspired choice. I remind my university kids who don't know that why do you think it is when you go to Washington, D.C., that almost all of our famous monuments look like Roman buildings, not like Christian cathedrals? And, and that that understanding that bifurcation, not just in government between the Senate and the, the people's house, but also in terms of how we borrowed rationality and democracy transformed into republicanism from the from the romans as well as the the judeo-christian heritage so go, getting back to what you were talking about and i think it's a really remarkable mm -hmm. point now that we understand that the the point that you bring back is really important uh they were surrounded by sea on three times, by, on three sides. Uh, it, it only took the threat from Carthage, really, uh, eight, 700 years later for them to actually realize they had to have a navy. So they went for almost six centuries, the Romans, getting more powerful, conquering more and more their civilization flourishing without paying any attention to the sea that was on three sides of them. And I think you have made a good point. Uh, Aristotle was right as well, that the seeds of republicanism comes from the farmers, those who are most directly responsible for feeding, for feeding themselves and others, those closest to the land. Uh, and America's best periods of growth came, in most instances, before a lot of the modernization that took place in this country. Expand a little bit on what we've just said. 
Well, like just to get back to what you said earlier, like uh, and you made a good point because Aristotle in politics, he does refer to democracy coming from farmers and the how the Romans, like you said, how, what the difference between like the, the, the Greeks, they had the Areopagus, right? That was their their chamber, their their kind of legislative body. And, uh, you know, that would be the equivalent of like a Senate. Right. And so Cicero, if you read his book, wonderful book, De Republica, right? So ever pertaining to a republic. Um, and in De Republica, he talks about a, 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 how this is different from the Greek democracy is that he said he wanted to build a government on uh, on the basis of the three classical forms, right? So monarchy, aristocracy, and, and democracy, if you want to call that, right? So those three together would be a republic. So, so monarchy would lead to like the Roman consul or our president, right? That would be the representative of monarchy. Aristocracy would be our Senate, right? Or, or you know, their, their, the Roman Senate. And, you know, the, the uh, House of Plebes would be the House of Commons, you know, in England, in, in the United States. So England, too, is, is set up much like that with a king, House of Lords and House of Commons, a tripartite setup. And that's how the United States was. And it was directly based on Cicero. I mean, the blueprint, if you open up De Republica by Cicero, it's like point by point you know, essentially a blueprint for, for the United States government. And um, so, yeah, so that is the, the very first republic because it's a divided form of government very, very purposefully. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like the, the, the Romans were very, you, you mentioned Christianity. Uh, Thomas Madden uh, talks about how the Romans, just like uh, the Americans, were derided by the by the dissolute Greeks because they still believed in the gods. Like the Romans were were made fun of, you know, like kind of like how modern Europeans look at Americans and say, oh, well, look at this poll. More Americans believe in the virgin birth than believe in evolution. Ha ha ha! Aren't they unsophisticated? But that level of morality is what led everybody to trust the Romans. Uh, and and so uh, Madden's book is called Empires of Trust. And he, he, he talks about how there are two different forms of empire. There is a, a mercantile empire, and that would be like England, right, where they spread just doing trade. But then he said there was an empire of trust, which is where people trust the actual people of a particular civilization. So they trusted the Romans to honor their word because they were a pious, moral, religious people. And so when the Romans got attacked, um, you know, they basically started making defensive alliances with other other groups, other tribes, and people trusted them. And so they they, they, they actually spread not through conquest, but they spread through these defense, defensive agreements with other people to try to basically create buffer zones to protect Rome. And so the United States, Thomas Madden says, is very, very similar, uh, not just starting as an agrarian population, but also as a highly, you know, anomalously religious place, you know, especially compared to the Europeans. And he makes an interesting point. He says um, he's, he's creating analogs, right? Uh, and so just as the Etruscans were the parent population of the uh, of, of the uh, the Romans. Um, he says that England is the parent population of the United States. And just as the Greeks, whom the Romans admired greatly, but were dissolute and kind of, you know, <laughs> shiftless and, and squabbling and stuff, um, you know, were, were beyond the, the Etruscans. So in, in the United States, the analog would be Western Europe, you know. So we have England as our direct parent, you know, Et, Et, you know Etruria, uh, and then, you know, Western Europe as as Greece, where we we love their culture, we love a lot of the ideals and history and stuff, but they basically look down their nose at us just as the Greeks look down their nose at the, at the Romans. But nevertheless, yeah, I mean, to, their, their spread happened because people trusted them. We're watching that break down now. 
as the United States ceases to be kind of this, you know, seen as like Henry Fonda, you know, seen as 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 uh, Jimmy Stewart. That was the old image of the trustworthy kind of hayseed, but he was, you know, a pious man. And that was our image globally. We had tremendous soft power. And now that people are ceasing to trust us, we're watching kind of an erosion of American soft power abroad. So very similar processes. Important, you mentioned Cicero's Republica, and we talk, when we think about Cicero, we think about that first century before the birth of Christ, uh, the, the last hundred years of the before Christ era. And what's really interesting is, is that not only was Cicero the blueprint that our founding fathers, and they, they read the Bible, we know that, but we also know that the founding fathers really, really paid attention to Roman history in places like Plutarch's lives, which was both the lives of Plutarch's were, the, were biographies of an ancient Roman paired with an ancient Greek. And not only was it biographically accurate as much as Plutarch could be in the second, second, second century AD, but they were moral comp comparisons. We would compare, compare Aristotle, uh, or Alexander the Great would be compared with Julius Caesar. And that's where I want to go for a moment. Julius mm -hmm. Caesar also lived at the same time Cicero did, and Cicero was one of the most outspoken voices that what Julius Caesar was trying to do to, was to undermine the Republic by making himself de facto a king. And so this is the very important period. This is the lynch period of, of the Roman Republic with the civil wars that preceded Caesar and then Julius Caesar, you really did have the final nails being driven into the Republic. One man seeking greater power, you buying. And, and how, did the, how did Pompey and Sulla and Marius and ultimately Julius Caesar, how did they transform uh, the Republic that had been around for almost 700 years? How'd they get rid of it? Well, a couple of things. They used military power inside the territory of Rome rather than against their enemies. They billeted soldiers now, something that the, the Constitution warns us about. They billeted soldiers in Rome. When Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, that was it, right? When he marched effectively on Rome and occupied it, even, he did, even though he didn't threaten force, that changed a lot of minds, a lot of swords there. You better pay attention to Caesar. Other things that they did, going back to Marius and Sulla, buying votes, using taxpayer money to fund all sorts of giveaways to, to make people loyal to the givers, not to the, the, the protectors, the republic. And so ta let's talk about this and shift quickly then into what all these lessons of the fall of the Roman Republic teach us about where this American Republican is heading. Yeah, um, well, one of the, the things that Rome had different than we did, I mean, we're, it's not 100% identical on both sides, but one of the things, uh, mistakes that Rome probably made, uh, you know, kind of institutionally, was that their senators also were generals, right? So in our country, in our constitution, like the president is commander in chief, but you don't have Senator Chuck Schumer with his own private army. You, know, you don't have, yeah, you don't have like all these different senators coming in. And, and so there was a lot of pressure from the armies uh, to basically, you know, have the most powerful senator because then they could get the most choice assignments. They could get like all the plunder that they wanted. So they would basically, you know, kind of like advocate for their particular senator to, you know, be a strong man. And so, yeah, so Julius Caesar had an army, but then so did all the other, <laughs> other senators. So, so it became a very dangerous uh, brew. Thomas Hobbes, uh, in Leviathan, right? So the political scientist from England right, in the 1600s, he, he basically said that that for all the good things, you know, that a republic might have, 
Um, he said that one of the dangers of a republic, he said, is that in, in a monarchy, there's a clear ruler. Um, and, you know, monarchies can rot and decay and turn into tyrannies, yes. Uh, but he said that the, the, the liability of a republic is because there's no clear leader that everybody can jockey for power. And it causes these internal fractious divisions, this internecine fighting. And um, he said, so, so in a time of war, he said a republic is only at peace in a time of war because they, they can all unify and they attack an external enemy. He said, however, peace is toxic to a lot of republics because they start fighting each other. And so, you know, we, we, we watch this in the United States as well. You know, as, as we're expanding out, we can kind of project aggression outward, whether it's against the, the Native Americans, you know, in the, in the 1800s, whether it's against Nazi Germany. I mean, we really only discovered Americanism in World War One. Before World War One, we were New Yorkers. We were Virginians. We were South Carolinians. You know, we, we didn't have a real American identity like Henry Clay was pushing for, you know, since the 1830s. Uh, but war created this, this, this idea of Americanism. And, uh, now I have an American identity and the same thing happened to Rome. So when they were fighting Carthage, they were like, you, you know, kind of unified and stuff. But when 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 a time of peace came, you know, it became very dangerous and the senators turned on each other. You know, they, their, their personal armies would start, you know, doing you know outrages. And so, yeah, so um, Julius Caesar, had he not did what he did, he would have likely been assassinated and he was assassinated anyway. I think he ruled for what, four years. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was very, very dangerous times, you know, so. You know, it's interesting what you said is that uh, what the political theorists have said. Think about the wartime presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt for a moment. Uh, he did all sorts of things that in a, in a way Caesar kind of did. He expanded, wanted to expand the Supreme Court. He filled those offices with people who were loyal to him. He did a number of things economically and culturally that you could really argue were against the Constitution. But what was it that allowed people to fight that? What was it that kept him in power? It was World War II. If it had not been for World War II and the company, as you said, the country mobilized about around one one leader as they always do right you said yourself loved it you're quoting somebody else I know but the idea uh, uh, Republicans are republics are only at peace during wartime when they can rally so Roosevelt got away with a whole lot of things he never would have including the only president in American history to supersede that two-term limit because of the war powers. And so uh, it seems from that moment on, there's something really broken uh, when you com combine that with the rap rapid industrialization of World War II, the war machine, seems like we turned a corner there that we couldn't turn back. The same kind of corner that they turned in Rome with the advent of Julius Caesar. Is that fair to say? No, that's, that's br brilliantly put. Um, yeah, uh, like right now, I was doing a report on the New American TV with Rebecca Terrell. And uh, we were talking about like Vladimir Zelensky in uh, in the Ukraine and how he was demanding that the United States defend him. We have no you know mutual defense agreement with Ukraine. We have like 50 or so mutual defense agreements with other countries. We have no legal obligation to be in Ukraine. And this was one of the dangers George Washington warned about with entangling alliances, um, where he said that you know like if if we you know get involved with all these countries, it's just going to draw us in. But that's how Rome expanded through these empires of trust where where they 
they would do these mutual defense agreements. And it kind of led, you know, the, the erosion of the republic, which was a very decentralized idea. And that's why, like in our country, we're very decentralized. We, we, we don't have one country. We have a bunch of states, you know, and it's very decentralized. And it was done that way on purpose. And it's very Republican in nature. Like, look at the uh, the Swiss Republic. You know, it's, it's four different, you know, kind of regions with four different languages and all these different cantons and stuff. That's the nature of a republic. They're very fractured. And, and as a result, it's very hard to keep them together. It's like herding cats. And so war has always been kind of a a, a way for them to, to to herd them. I wanted to share one thing, if, if I might, and I hope I'm not going to be, you know, too annoying here, but there was this really great uh, passage by Thomas Madden that I wanted to share along this. He, he said around the time of uh, George Bush, he published the book around the time George Bush was president. And people are saying, oh, he's going to use the war to become a dictator. And he says, Claiming that President Bush or any other American president is a new Pompey or Augustus is simply the kind of frivolousness to be expected in a time of Pax. It sells books and makes for good talk show fodder, but it is historically absurd. The men who overturned the Roman Republic did so by wielding raw military power against their own government. Sending the armed forces to Iraq after a supporting congressional resolution is one thing. Sending them to Washington, D.C. is quite another. If a president, no matter how popular, gave an order to the Marines to surround Capitol Hill, it would not be obeyed. That is because American troops value their oath to defend the American Constitution higher than their duty to obey their commanding officer. He wrote this, of course, before they sent in troops to surround Washington, D.C. when Biden got in during his controversial election. So he was saying, you know, you don't have to worry until they start putting troops around the Capitol. Here we are. And it's because precisely because we have these entangling alliances. We've shifted from a republic to an empire and empires typically are kind of mean to their people. <laughs> I would argue, Daniel, that the uh, the FBI serves the role as kind of like the Praetorian Guard, so to speak, a force, yeah. a, a, a protective military force surrounding government, right? Uh, it, to me, that's the closest analogy. The Praetorian Guards, of course, were the emperor's own private guards during the imperial period, and they ultimately dominated Rome. He was the only one, the emperor, to allowed to have those kind of forces in the city of Rome. And so therefore, nobody dared uh, uh, challenge the, the, uh, the emperor. And that's why we got emperors like Caligula and Nero, who were just absolutely devastatingly horrible. My question, we've only got a little time. This is why I like having you on, Daniel. This, we, we've touched the base. We've lit a candle that could take us in 10 different direct directions for another half hour talk. So this is what I kind of like, this kind of shotgun way to try to get people in, in, in interested in Roman history and with the fate of America. But in the short time we have left, once a republic goes, we know this from history, it does not come back. Um, what is your moral, the one moral you take away from the history of Rome that you would use to warn Americans today? Well, I mean, a bunch of people, I mean, make the point, you know, from, you know, Polybius all the way to, to modern scholars um, is that the decline happened with the, the moral decline of the people. If you have an ethical and religious and pious people, you tend to get a republic. Uh, the, the sociologist um, uh, Talcott Parsons says that. He says, you know, people in a republic, in a productive society, they have the virtues of ethics and fair dealing. And people who go into a consumption-based society, they, they get into luxury and weakness and wastefulness and, 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 and immorality and stuff. And so that, the same thing happened to Rome. They were, you know, in many ways uh, a victim of their success. They became morally loose lacks. They stopped being pious and religious. And John Adams said that about our constitution. And I'll leave it there. He said, um, you know, our constitution was written for a religious 
religious and moral people. It is like it is unequal to the government of any other kind. <laughs> and that happened to Rome, you know. Adams also uh, stressed educated and moral people, right? The idea that we were both moral, and we've seen that fall by the wayside, and look at how the progressives who, do want, who want to destroy the republic are undermining our republic through education. Daniel, how can people find your other show with The New American? Um, they can just go to The New American or go to YouTube or Rumble or anything, look up The New American, go to the video section, you'll see The Daniel Natal Show there, or you can just go to any platform, type in The Daniel Natal Show or TheNewAmerican.com and uh, you'll find it there. And I thank you so much, uh, Duke, for having me on. And it's always a pleasure. My pleasure as well. We'll have you back next week. And that's going to wrap up this show. If you have any questions, comments, or you want to support the show, simply visit drdukeshow.com. For all of us here at The Dr. Duke Show, uh, I want to thank everybody and Daniel. That's a name, Daniel Natal. You're going to be hearing more of from us. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.